at the end of the day, a lot of businesses are leaning on the creative yeah. uh, for, for content, for articulation of their message, for creation of their message. And yet the artist who is sort of downstream, who gives birth to these great ideas is the least equipped to sort of protect themselves. So, yeah. um, so is, is, is that what you make sure that you teach in your workshops is that, Hey, you know, we're going to spend some yeah. time structurally setting yourself up. For, for sure. Cause I, I have to do it. And, and like, I, I do it because I'm genuinely concerned about these students and I, I teach kind of both in universities and kind of like in communities and for organizations. And it's the same thing that I would say to people is like, to, to young people, is that we want to exist in this wonderful space of creativity is beautiful and personal, but your creativity gets, it feels a, an industry, period. Like a billion pound industry, it feels it. So what people are constantly kind of benefiting from is your ignorance. So it's beyond just kind of teaching people about like, you know, self-love and empowerment and be creative. You go, okay, cool. How do we do your books? Yeah. How do we do kind of your, your taxes? How do you kind of negotiate imposter syndrome and race at the same time? You haven't to kind of learn multiple things in order to just exist. Because then when you do come across, for example, like imposter syndrome and race attacking you and you are then emotionally affected, then it affects your productivity, then you're not working. assume that with COVID, that process has, has changed. Um, what's changed in your world, I guess, is the short way of asking that question. Like everything just stopped. Good morning. Good day. Or good evening. And welcome to 54 lights. My name is Kondwani Mwase, and the next episode is Q the Bridge. In today's show, we'll speak with playwright, author, and teacher Zodwanyoni about the road to theater's revival. It's COVID. And the very idea of a revival of theater seems like a tall tale of fiction. Sure, we've made progress in our understanding of the virus, have made gains in some parts of the world, and appear bullishly ready for that second wave. But it is still a pandemic, a crisis of biblical proportions. So the thought of theater live theater seems strange. There's still so much to question about a return to the old in any form. Now what's of particular interest to me is how industries like travel and entertainment actually make their comeback. How they re-engage and reignite the public in spite of these circumstances. Now what used to be a simple night out has become a complicated journey of pre-booking and 
spacing or masking. What used to be a day trip in and out of the US for business is now actually a distant memory that's been replaced by video calls and virtual handshakes. The old days are truly a distant memory. And yet there is this glimmer, this faint ray of hope that we are all clinging to. In hospitality, there are droves of people looking to travel within their own countries, most notably in Holland, where there's been a spike of tourism thanks to people traveling within their borders. Imagine that, the novelty of actually vacationing in a country you live in. In entertainment, well, there is hope there too. The Bridge Theatre, based in the UK, is opening its doors, albeit carefully, through a series of monologue-style plays. All this in the spirit of reaching a new normal. Now all of these progressive steps are hardly Herculean. Travel and entertainment, theatre specifically, are industries on the brink of it. And so too are the people that earn a living from the work in these arenas. My curiosity to understand the impact and the road back led me to the doorstep of Zodwa Nyoni. Zodwa, as I mentioned, is an acclaimed playwright and poet who catapulted into the spotlight after her play, Boy Boy is Dead, went into production in 2014. She's won countless awards, including the Award for the Arts and Young, Black, and Asian Writers Award. Beyond the stage, she is a teacher, having led workshops in the UK, US, and South Africa. Her latest exploit, Nine Lives, will be on display at the aforementioned Bridge Theatre as part of their series of COVID-friendly monologues. Now, full disclosure, Zodwa is family. And suffice it to say, her family and I hope the entire nation of Zimbabwe are rooting for one of its brightest stars to continue to shine. Here, in part, is our conversation. Uh, my name is Zodwa Nyoni. I am a Playwright primarily, but I also work as like a poet, screenwriter, and a film director. Okay. Um, I've kind of been working, um, started writing actually about, gosh, 15 years ago now. Um, and kind of then like in like the kind of slam, youth kind of slam poetry world and kind of doing like spoken word, like <laughs> and touring and writing. And it was just like this mad world of just performing arts and kind of not knowing where it would take you. And then you know, here you are 15 years later thinking, oh snap, like I've actually survived this life of being an artist. <laughs> Long time <laughs> writing. That's awesome. But I definitely want to dig into that. Um, but I didn't know actually it was 15 years. So that's, that's, that's incredible in terms of like 
commitment, honing your craft. So we'll get there into us in a second. But I think you dodged part of that question because I know you have a middle name that you did not throw out there. So you know, it's like it's like the full name. Like the full name is Dombizodwa. And like I wish I had like a middle name, but like because you have such like a meaty first name, it's like it's okay. You've got a whole eleven letters. It's all right. <laughs> that's so this this maybe jumps into my uh one of my questions so typically um i've heard a lot of people with with intombi go with intombi and i actually didn't know that the is is it normally the full name is intombi zodwa or is there are there different variations of it no like there's so many different variations like my sister pinky is actually intombi gayite so there's like all these other things that you can have on your side like don't be just like the girl you know the girl of or the you know so it can be other things after that Oh, that's so funny. Okay. Okay. So um, then if we, if we zone in on the Zodwa part, um, mm-hmm. or, or actually maybe, maybe we'll, we'll stick with the Ntombi. Did you choose not to go by Ntombi? Because like I said, I've got some people who go by Ntombi uh, in, at least in Western circles, if you will. Um, do you know what? I think for the most part, I think always, I've always gone by Zo. Mm-hmm. That always been like a consistent thing. And I think at some point, like when I started writing, I must have like clocked a, a picture of myself when I was like in, you know, in nursery, like in Zim. And like I had like this little um, school bag, like the little kind of lunch box thing. And it's like brown, it's like a standard like, little bag. And on it, it had like Zodwa. And I was like, oh, okay, I've never actually gone by Zodwa. So like we'll start using that, that as like kind of a professional name. And oh. it's just, yeah, it's just kind of stuck. I think lately, I'd say solidly like in the last, maybe kind of two to three years there's just been like this desire to kind of for myself even just to see my full name written because I don't even think I even see it quite often written down so I was like I need to use it for myself because otherwise it sort of feels like this name that is said and it's almost like by surprise like who are you referring to and it's like actually it's me (laughs) (laughs) no no that that's me that's me you haven't met me me until today oh that's exactly is there any meaning behind the name yeah, so Ntombizodwa um, basically means like girls only, which kind of can tell the story of like your family and like what they have. And I'm like the last born. So I'm like literally like the last of a whole bunch of girls. <laughs> You've bounced around a little bit. So you have lived in Zim as well as in the UK. Is that is that correct? Yeah, so we were born, I was born in Zim. And then we moved to England when I was about four. And right. we were here for about three years. So then we moved back to Zim when I was seven. Stayed in Zim again for like another four years until we kind of came back here in the late 90s. And we've kind of been here since. So that's a good, you know, 21 years in England now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how, how has those migrations back and forth, if at all, have they informed your writing and have they sort of influenced how you go about your craft and what the outputs are? Um, I think what has always been like certain is that like you're made of two places and you're made of kind of two cultures and kind of two influences. And my formation um, in terms of kind of how I think and my values are very much kind of influenced by Zimbabwe and Zimbabwean culture um, and having Zimbabwean parents. Then you start to grow up and then you're socialized within England. Then you have to kind of negotiate like what are these two kind of two spaces. So you then have to think about yourself in, in terms of, kind of your, your identity, like, well, I'm this Zimbabwean and this, um, and this African, specifically Southern African. And you do that because 
in England, you then get characterized as like just black, everybody just black. It's like, well, no, I'm not. Because specifically, I'm like, I'm African and I'm Southern African. I'm specifically Zimbabwean. I'm specifically Ndebele, you know? So you always having to kind of figure out like who you are whilst this kind of society is trying to like assimilate you. Mm-hmm. And I think that just inevitably kind of end up forming what my writing was about initially was just to know who I was. And then it became about wanting to then tell the story of people who are like me, people who kind of existed like in these margins, um, because they also made up um, the British society, but also kind of made up what it meant to be Zimbabwean. Because you have these people who migrate, you have these people kind of live in the diaspora, but also feel very much kind of connected to back home. So where were you when you started to get um, um, seduced by the pen? And I, I like, I'm, I'm making that maybe a bit more dramatic than it is, but where were you when you first um, sort of said, hey, this is, this, I like to do this. I like to write. Uh, I was in England. I was, um, God, I was 16, I'd say. And I think there was a definite, there was a moment I chose it kind of in loving English at school and I think I at that point hadn't I was doing GCSE which is like your O-level and I think at that point hadn't kind of come across um, writing that was from other cultures a lot of it was kind of very much kind of English and really white and then we got given this um, anthology of poems and it was just kind of poems from other cultures I think that's what it was called really and like in it there was like poems from like Pakistan and India um there were Irish poets in there there's Scottish poets in there there's South African poets in there and suddenly you're like oh wow like you can do that like you can write about yourself and this is what it means to kind of write about like your identity and also like this really great English teacher like he was just amazing like he was such a great storyteller and I think that's genuinely what helped me it's like the only A I've ever gotten and so I think that's what kind of helped me like do so well was because I was I was engaged. Yeah, you were passionate. And then I stopped completely. And it wasn't just about like kind of getting a good grade. He was like, no, let me tell you a story. You know, everything is a story. Like life is a story, you know? And then I started writing poetry. And at that time, I was just like, oh, I'm just going to write these kind of little bits of, you know, poetry just for myself. And then I started going to poetry readings and buying poetry collections. And one of the collections I bought was a poet called Benjamin Zephaniah. And he was doing like this live performance in Leeds and I went to see it. And there was a group called Leading Authors that was opening for him. And I'd never seen like a group of young people performing poetry. And it was kind of like the whole, you know, deaf poetry jam kind of flex. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yo, okay, I, that's cool. Like, I want to, I want to be a part of that, you know? So I went up to the woman, I was like, yo, like, how do I join? Like, what, what do I have to do? And that's how I got started in Leading Authors. And kind of got opened up into this world of youth poetry and kind of poetry slams and kind of competitions and like leading authors at the time. This was like 2005. They were doing um, weekly workshops um, in the community that I that I lived in, um, which is Chapel Town. Mm-hmm. And I started attending like every Tuesday night, you know, six to eight. Like a whole bunch of young people would come out from the community and sit in this classroom and learn about phonetics. And then learn about, you know, how do you write about what your upbringing and then like you fuse poetry, and then you fuse Shakespeare. And it was fun. It wasn't like what we were learning in school, like at all. Mm-hmm. And we kind of got taught about performance. And then we got introduced. They were already kind of slamming at that point. And they were taking part in uh, Brave New Voices um, International Poetry Festival, which was in, in America. But it happens in a different city every year. So the year that I joined, I think they'd just been 
first time that I joined. And the whole idea was that you had to compete in like a slam in Leeds. And then the team would get chosen from that, um, from that slam. And then you get put onto the international team and you don't go off and you um, represent the UK. So I took part in the slam like 2006 and then I was on the New York team. And it's like, you know, me and and my friends and we're like, what, 16, 17? Actually, I wasn't even younger than that because I remember Rahima was even younger than that. She was like 13. It's like 13 to kind of 17 year olds, you know, with their poetry mentors going off to New York. And like, you're running around the city feeling cool as hell doing poetry and then you're meeting like other teams around the city because we're all doing like a series of bouts in order for you to kind of get through all the different rounds and it was like yo okay this is this is what words can do this is what kind of poetry and performance can do and nobody was showing us that besides um Khadija and Paulette Morris and like they were the only organization that was doing that in the UK and since then there's been like other groups that have kind of grown up um, from their their work so like groups like Manchester and London but you know as of like 2002 Legion Wars was literally leading the way and they were the only international team at Brave New Voices um, up until I think Manchester came maybe like five or six years later. How did you learn the performance side of it because I th- there's there's a there's a definitely a divide between writing and performing um, or is there? There is, I think, but it's also figuring out like performance where. So like specifically the performance within like a slam context is a particular thing Mm. because within slam, you know, you're getting scored based on like your content and your performance. So you learn about those kind of different performance styles within slam. And I think that's what these young authors used to teach because we used to do loads of different um, poetry competitions, but also we used to just do poetry reading. And and then a lot of that learning was about how do you engage an audience and what is the audience that you are engaging with? which is also going to be very different to the audience that you engage with in theater, for example, right. or the audience that you then engage with, like, you know, on screen, all yeah. the different kind of methods of like performance required to kind of learn like the craft. Mm-hmm. So we had to kind of learn that skill, particularly if we wanted to slam, but also like, there were some people who just weren't slammers. And a lot of people don't like slamming because they don't like the idea of like you being a, your, your creativity being put in a competitive space. Whereas I, I genuinely like it. Wow. Wow. That's yeah, you're right. It's contextually, it's very, very different. So um, I'm curious then to know as uh, I'm sort of trying to walk, walk your journey a little bit. When did you then say, Hey, you know what? I love writing. You're there. You're at a space where you love writing. You like storytelling. You like the narration. You like everything about it. But when then you, do you then pivot and say, I want to go into theater writing? Um, I kind of got to a point really with like the, poetry whereby I felt like I don't know like like it wasn't enough space Mm -hmm. space to um communicate where I was and like what I was feeling I needed more I think that's what it was and as much as I knew that I could write poetry I don't think that I kind of figured out who I was as a writer until I then stepped into theater and I remember somebody had sent me like an email to say there was this company called Freedom Studios in Bradford that was doing this um, series of workshops, that kind of an introductory course into playwriting. And what I loved about um, theater, and I kind of gone on from high school to then study performing arts and studied acting. And whilst I was kind of doing acting, then realized that um, actually what I enjoyed more than anything was interrogating the script instead of me then becoming the actor. I was like, okay, I was like introducing like this 
new world of writing. And I was like, oh, I want to see what I can do in this space because like the playwright puts in all these little clues that then the actor has to find. And it's the same thing that you kind of get in like, you know, in fiction is that you, you it's how you kind of control people's emotions. And I think you do that exactly the same thing in poetry, but I wanted a different space to do that. And I knew that poetry wasn't enough for me anymore. So then I was like, okay, what is this new space called theater? I then go on to Freedom Studios to do their course. And like, I just, I loved it. Like I loved the idea of kind of being part of like this continuation where I have the idea, I put it into a script. I pass it off to a director who passes it on to an actor who then passes on um, to the audience. And I was like, okay, I want to be part of that process. And then I started kind of watching a lot of theater that wasn't necessarily like Shakespeare because like there's just a lot of Shakespeare. Like every company is yeah. going to kind of do Shakespeare. And there was um, John Carney, who is a writer and director and actor, just extraordinaire um, from South Africa. And it was like in 2007, he brought a play to Leeds. Seven seven or nine, one of those two, he brought a play to Leeds called uh, Nothing But The Truth. And I'd never seen a play. And like what they did was they basically built a South African township uh, on stage. And I was like, wow, like you can do that. Mm-hmm. You can literally build South Africa in here. Mm-hmm. And it's beyond just, because we'd seen it, like, in, you know, your Shakespeare's or whatever. But then what we hadn't, I hadn't seen it was something that genuinely spoke to me. And I was like, okay, I want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. I want to be part of this, this new continuation of collaboration with artists because I think poetry for me was also feeling really lonely not only that I want to learn like the craft of building work in theater and see who I am as that that person who who am I and how do I engage with kind of different audiences I got to the whole course um of with Freedom Studios and this is now like at the back end of 2010 and I was like okay cool I think this is it then I think this is this is me like I want to this is what I want to do. And then I went on to do another development course um, at, at the time it was called the West Yorkshire Playhouse, but now it's called the Leeds, um, Leeds Playhouse. And they were developing five playwrights. So they had like multiple different kind of development courses. They'd had one, which was called, so you want to be a writer. That was like 25 writers. They had one, which was just a small group which had been funded by the BBC Writers Room at the time. And it was just like five of us. And I remember the, the literary associate at the time was called Alex Chisholm. And she said, you know what, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to put you all up in a hotel. And I'm going to give you just uh, the weekend to write the first draft of your plays. And it's like full length plays. And wow. it's like, whatever it is, just write it and get to the end of it by, by that weekend. And I remember us, we, we sat like in our, in our hotel rooms. And then we also had like this little space that we could go and write. And we just sat there. We just kind of go, blah. <laughs> like, literally. That's a lot of like, pressure, isn't it? I mean, that Pardon? That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Just to be. I think what I think the aim was to stop you from overthinking mm. and just put it down on paper. She then um, spent time with us, kind of crafting the place and realizing that this kind of mammoth of a beast was going to take a lot longer than what I thought. Because I think poetry had always been like a lot quicker for me definitely kind of a lot quicker so what it did was it then taught me more about different types of writing and different levels of your of your craft so that play that was written over the weekend which was boy boy is dead only became what it eventually was when it was produced over the course of four years wow. and that was four years of like 
structure and character and plots and it was just so many drafts but I needed to do that to kind of learn what it means to be a playwright and learn what it means to put together a play you know um and then in 2014 I remember she was she was saying you know you've kind of been working on this thing for like four years now you've got to kind of we've got to let it go now and letting it go literally meant like you know it's got to be seen by an audience so we submitted it to the channel for playwrights game and the idea of like the playwright scheme was that you would get a grant, which would help you kind of go into production, but also help you kind of develop the play, um, give you kind of money to live basically, kind of whilst we develop developing the play further. But also like the theater had to commit to producing it. Mm-hmm. So we genuinely put it in for the channel for playwright scheme, forgot about it, and thought, oh, okay, you know what, it's this, you know, really competitive thing, probably didn't get it. And then we got this call to say like we've been shortlisted. We have to go to London for this interview, and we're just like it's nothing it's fine it's fine <laughs> and then you're sitting there with like all these execs and they're like oh cool so what's your thing about and funnily enough um i think it's called richard Eyre sitting in front of me and my play set in zim and he was like do you know my daughter's going to zim and like she's doing all this work about like zim and getting to know zim and like it was interesting kind of seeing like zimbabwe like from the point of view of like your characters and kind of it was quite nice to kind of get something different i was like oh wow okay so there's definitely kind of power in like speaking who you are and, yeah. and writing that and I'm glad I kind of committed to that because the people who I thought were least likely to connect to it actually found a kind of an entry point into it and that was that was effectively your your breakout right like that was the breakout play that that it really was yeah it. because what I had done before like from Freedom Studios to the Leeds Playhouse is that I'd written a lot of short plays mm-hmm. and a lot of short plays were kind of like these little kind of intro bits but then Boy Boy was like that first full-length play and it just did really well you know and it was like a definite shift from you being this writer kind of on your own doing these little short plays where nobody really is kind of looking there's suddenly kind of everybody looking and then suddenly like the writing thing is no longer just like your passion thing it's like a job job because now people are like hey can you turn stuff out and i'm like yeah no no thank you like there's no training um <laughs> and I, but it took a while to learn that i couldn't turn because it, a lot of it is about process and it's about understanding your process rather than being so reactive to the industry. And sometimes you will spend so much time, and I didn't really learn this until like quite later on, actually, is that you will learn that the industry in itself is a business and they have its own and they have agendas. So if you constantly spend your time being reactive to that, you can very easily like bring yourself out, kind of feeding what they need. One hundred percent, and I love I love the insight that you're giving to to the process because that was going to be my next question. Is that I assume that with COVID, that process has has changed in a yeah. sense that obviously theater houses now um, are not open. If they're opening up, which they are uh, in late August, as as I understand it in the UK, um, it's going to be much more limited. There are things outdoor that are happening here in Canada. So how how has it been um, coming from essentially a really successful background in theater where you understood the process and it's work, you, you've, you've sort of navigated it and made it work to now sort of almost having to relearn it? Well, like everything just stopped. Mm-hmm. Like all of the projects like just stopped. And it was kind of difficult to like, because I think naturally being a writer, you're also doing the practical thing of being a freelancer. And the practicality of being a freelancer is that you do multiple jobs. Like, that's just it. It's a given. So in doing all of that, 
and constantly kind of being on the go, suddenly then it all just kind of stops. And it's like, okay, what do I do with myself? Because in my head, I'm always like, okay, I know like the length of time it's going to take me to write a play. So that's why I then would slide in a radio play underneath that, or then I'll just teach alongside it. Suddenly you're not necessarily kind of negotiating like all these kind of different processes. So when everything kind of just stopped, it was like, well, as a creative, what you always appreciate is the process of output. So I will spend time crafting on my own, but I know at some point I'm going to hand it over, whether or not it's like my collaborators, it's going to be to a theater, I'm going to hand it over, it's going to be moving forward. But there wasn't like a path as to where it was going. And for me, it felt like, well, why, why am I doing it then? And I kind of lost sight of that because I was like, it's not going anywhere. Like the world isn't even like interacting with anybody anymore, you know, We're kind of like all huddled away in our own spaces for safety. So what happens to this creativity? Where does it go? And, you so, and then you realize how so much of yourself and your process is kind of tied to this kind of give and take, you know, with the outside world, with buildings, with other collaborators, with audiences. It's this kind of process of receiving, you know, and sharing. And we're not doing that anymore. And I'm not getting fed anymore. Yeah. And it's becoming so disheartening. And I don't know what to do with myself anymore. And I'm definitely kind of beyond a point where I'm just writing for myself. I was that person, you know, when I was, you know, 17, 18, 19, even kind of going to like my early 20s. I was that person. But now I'm, I'm, I'm functioning within the industry. And I need an industry to be functioning. And it isn't doing that at all. It's also trying to figure out, like, what does it do for itself? Yeah. Because how it knows itself as, it, to, to exist no longer is possible so there was a period of time where we everybody was just kind of at, at a standstill and then you're then worried about okay what happens to my projects because the theaters are not communicating to you or with you at all because they also have no idea what's going on mm-hmm. they go from shutting down to we'll make a plan to mass redundancies and then on top of mass redundancies you then get a lot of theaters then that are going under and you're going, oh, wow, like this is the landscape now. And then for those who are kind of doing, you know, your nine to five jobs, the government has, you know, furlough schemes and there are bailout plans. There was zero bailout plans or schemes or grants for self-employed people. There was nothing. Mm-hmm. So we were all like, yo, this is the gap in, 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 in law and like in policy. There's like, there's nothing for us. Mm-hmm. And yet people are at home gorging on creativity what is happening to the government taking care of us and there was so much kind of campaigning for the government to respond in some way so it wasn't until um so we're in august now so i'd say got april i think it was april may when they eventually kind of came up with a self-employment grant but then with the idea with the self-employment grants that you had to prove you had been a creative for a minimum of three years and then submit like all of your tax returns. So for um, those artists that hadn't really done the practicality bit and the administration bit of being a creative, you then realized how much the system really wasn't going to consider you and take care of you wow. at all. And there were so many artists that didn't really qualify at all. So and it's one of the things that I always, you know, say to my students is that these are things that will matter at some point, you know. So even if you, you literally make nothing, 
you doing like the admin bit and the bureaucracy bit of being a creative is also just as important because like you are your own business mm-hmm. and I don't think any of us ever really saw like the whole nobody saw the, like COVID coming nobody, you know nobody yeah. even saw I think people even knew that you know self-employed people weren't really kind of being taken care of but they didn't realize like the extent in which it would matter that they weren't being taken care of like people had no jobs no money and I remember like they were you know um emails going around where people could like put in like into this chart like the number of jobs they'd lost and the amount of money they'd lost and people just were losing thousands wow. and it's stuff like they were heavily reliant on just to exist um so when so I was kind of one of the fortunate ones who were able to kind of get the grant because I'd been like you know filing my taxes like since like 2012 you know and I think even like filing it badly but just filing it for the sake of doing the bureaucracy yeah but you're you're yeah. doing it you're doing it still yeah. yeah I was doing it you know and kind of figuring it out like along the way kind of getting better about it, just kind of keeping books and it's like one of those things that you realize they're not teaching in in creativity yeah I was they'll gonna, tell uh, you go forth, be creative, make work, it's amazing. But you have to teach practicality alongside it mm-hmm. because then you learn how to sustain yourself as a business. And they don't tell you that because we want to exist in this wonderful space of creativity is beautiful and personal, but your creativity gets, it feels a, an industry, period. Like a billion pound industry, it feels it. So what people are constantly kind of benefiting from is your ignorance. Yeah, and particularly then when you then start adding like class and race, and like all of these other intersections of life, then realize how much you're going to continuously kind of get shortchanged. So it's beyond just kind of teaching people about like you know self love and empowerment and be creative. You go okay, cool. How do we do your boxes, your books? Yeah. How do we do kind of your your taxes? How do you kind of negotiate imposter syndrome and race at the same time? You haven't to kind of learn multiple things in order to just exist because then when you do come across for example like imposter syndrome and race attacking you and you are then emotionally affected then it affects your productivity then you're not working right 100%. so many of these things are like <laughs> intertwined yeah in they're, they're so they're so connected and i think i love the i love that you you're pointing that out because one of the things that's always perturbed me uh and it's interesting that this is prevalent uh, you know i'm sure it's prevalent around the world is that the world of the artist, even in school, there is no like business class that is given. Um, And to your point, at the end of the day, this world, uh, a lot of businesses are leaning on the creative uh, for, for content, for articulation of their message, for creation of their message. And yet the artist who is sort of downstream, who gives birth to these great ideas, is in, in effectively the least equipped to sort of protect themselves. So, yeah. um, so is, is, is that what you make sure that you teach in your workshops is that, Hey, you know, we're going to spend some yeah. time structurally setting yourself up. For, for sure. Cause I, I have to do it. And, and like, I, I do it because I'm genuinely concerned about these students. And I, I teach kind of both in universities and kind of like in communities and organizations. And it's the same that I would say to people is like, to to young people is that um, you haven't kind of taught this thing or kind of introduced this this thing called creativity and this thing kind of called whether or not it's poetry or theater or music or whatever. But understand that your creativity is going to fuel a business and fuel an industry. And they might not tell you straight straight away that that's what you're doing, but that's just the reality. That is what you are doing. So you have to learn, like, what are the best ways can I protect myself? 
to learn about what it means to be self-employed, sign up, yep. register yourself. Yeah, register. <laughs> the register. inland revenue. Yeah. Do all that stuff. And know that you have to like keep a track of your expenses. When you think about like how you make money, study the industry. Study how theater in itself like um, programs. Study how radio produces. Study how you even get funding for short films uh, and how long it takes. Study how you get paid in shorts, which is very different to how you get paid in, in theater. Mm -hmm. Study how you're going to get paid and make, and make feature films. You have to study the industries that you want to be in because it's not just about you um, fueling them with creativity. You need to exist within that. You need to kind of have power within that too. So it's like a constant thing that I can say to them. So for example, like my students um, at, at the university, they're always, the first semester is about kind of writing their first draft of plays. And I always say to them, you're not great. Like you've got to the end of the semester, you've written your plays. This probably won't see the light of day for like another three years. Like if that. <laughs> like, oh, no, I'm you break it down to them. Yeah, don't sugarcoat it. I was like, unless at the start of the semester, you were getting in touch with theaters to introduce yourself, to tell them what you were doing. They're probably going to have like a pile of other scripts that they have to read by the time the semester ends. So you're going to add to that pile and then you're going to wait for a response. What are you going to be doing in the meantime? Are you going to be starting to write something else? Are you going to go introduce yourself to other people? Networking is important. You know, <laughs> like all these like practical things um, help you to kind of build your career because like the creativity bit is like a portion of it. There's so many other things that you kind of have to do alongside it. Listen, so I have uh, a few minutes left with you, but I I I I want to yes. I want to ask you about Nine Lives and the Bridge yes. Theater. Nine Lives has been this um, little gem of a play. So Nine Lives is is the second play I wrote, or the first play I wrote after Boy Boy. Mm -hmm. And I remember kind of when Nine Lives was coming up, um, I was kind of doing Boy Boy. There was like all this attention, and I was like, I remember kind of emailing the literary associate, and I think, oh, I can't do it. Like, I can't do it because it's too much attention and too much pressure. And people expect me to come to write this thing, but I can't do it. And she's like, you know what, take a break. Take a break and take a walk and figure out what is the story that you want to write. And I remember kind of, and I remember that the commission when I got initially was like, it has to be no more than an hour, no more than three people. And I was like, well, I, I want to, and I never written monologues at that point. And when I went to take my walk and took my break, and I ended up reading a lot of stuff around immigration. Mm -hmm. And reading stuff, and also like knowing that my family didn't necessarily fall into the category of refugees and asylum seekers. So I had no idea what it meant to be a refugee and asylum seeker and what that kind of immigration process was. And then I kind of ended up into like this rabbit hole of like <laughs> internet <laughs> and like websites <laughs> and learning that like, you know, if you apply, you know, based on the fear of like you're um, being persecuted for your sexuality, you're considered um, guilty before you're considered innocent. So you have to work your way up to like kind of innocent in order for you to kind of get your claim. You know, I was reading kind of testimonies from, from you know, lawyers who were representing people who, you know, were now submitting sex tapes to prove that they were gay, you know, and like all this stuff. And I was thinking, how, how is this even possible? Wow. And then that's kind of when like the character of kind of Ishmael rose. And I did like research around like what it means to be gay in Zimbabwe as well. And like the fact that it was illegal. Yeah. Um, and then kind of built kind of uh, Ishmael's character, but also knowing that when you then... Uh, flee you're not only existing kind of in your own space because you then end up in, in communities in the countries that you arrive in so that's what happens in nine lives that you have this young man called ishmael who flees um zimbabwe because he his lover gets found out so then he feels like he's in danger 
when he then arrives to England, he ends up getting um, detained and then dispersed. This is what happens in, in, in England, is that you kind of get dispersed to wherever there is space for you. So he ends up kind of getting dispersed out to leave. And mm. it's in this community um, called Omni, where he then starts meeting all these other people. So that's where like the nine different lives come up. But right. all the nine different kind of lives kind of tell a story of like the community, or, like of the city, but also like their interaction with immigration. And also kind of what like the environment kind of is, the climate at that time when I wrote it, which was um, in 2014. And a lot of that stuff hasn't even changed, actually. I was going to say, that's probably really prevalent today. Yeah, it's still kind of very kind of hostile environment. So when we first kind of did Nine Lives, we toured it to Leeds and then to um, Scotland. And then it then got picked back up again by Leeds Studio. And it had like this kind of massive national tour for like two years. And it kind of culminated... Uh, in London at the Alcola in 2016. And at that time, when we had it at, at the Alcola, we, we, it was used as, part, it also went to, I forgot, even though it went to like the House of Parliament. So we did, that was amazing. So, but when we got to like the Alcola, um, the UK lesbian and gay asylum seeker group were having a gala to kind of raise awareness um, of the organization, the work that they do. And like Sir Ian McKellen came and like all these wonderful people kind of came to see the show. And he had like this wonderful, you know, kind of closing, you know, ceremony of a tour and like genuinely thought, oh, this this is it now. Oh, it's, it's done, it's done great work, great. And then because of kind of lockdown, what happened is that people needed place to watch. They kind of needed to like engage with theater again. Of course, yeah. So we then put it back online. So we put it on YouTube. And then we started kind of getting a lot more attention for it. So when the Bridge Theatre were looking for um, monologue shows, they then kind of saw online lives. And also like having to kind of abide by, you know, social distancing rules. You then can't have like 50 people on stage plus like a thousand people, you know, in the building. And then Nine Lives kind of slotted into um, that space. And it's been so wonderful to kind of have it come back again. Because then not only we kind of bring it back like kind of the old crew, we're also kind of able to kind of share with new audiences um, and kind of like take it to like a brand new space, which has been so exciting to kind of see this kind of come through. And like, this, this is part of like a roster of like amazing other performers. So we're just like, yay, we've missed theater. Like we've oh, genuinely man. missed it. Yeah. So it's going to be, yeah, back out again. It's good. That's, that's so exciting. And I love that. Um, I love that you, you wrote it. So uh, it seems like so long ago, it's actually not that long ago, but it, you wrote it a while ago and it's still obviously relevant today, but the, in the format that it is, it, it folds itself really well into sort of yeah. uh, the COVID uh, or the resurgence of theater within COVID's constraints. So yeah, it um, is. Yeah, that's so exciting. So it's um, just just from a, a date's perspective, I think it's the end of August, right? So August 31st. So the festival of like the repertoire begins at the end of um, August. But like Nine Lives uh, runs from the 22nd of October until the 31st of October. Okay, fantastic. Fantastic. How do um, how do people find out about what you're doing? You've got you've got handles, you've got like, how do people follow you though? I am like I I am I have Twitter thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Insta like it comes come meet me on Instagram. Like I'm I'm on Instagram a lot. <laughs> All right, perfect. And your handle on Instagram is the full Monica, right? It's the full Monica on um Twitter, it's like Zodua NY. Um my website is kind of out there as well, so I'm going to like update that a lot more. But like stuff is out there. And I think now I'm at a point where I'm also kind of introducing a lot more film 
So like I've got like a couple of films up on Vimeo as well. To write, to perform, to teach, which of those are where Zoe finds most comfort? To write. Zimbabwe, New York, and London, where would you find a great time to have a, 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 a two-week vacation? Zim. If you weren't doing what you're doing right now, if you weren't a, if you weren't a creative like that, mm-hmm. what, what would you be doing? I'd be a clinical psychologist. Two questions. One is, who plays you? What actress is cast to play you? And then the second one is, um, what's the name of the, what's the name of the book, of the movie, of the play? Ooh. I think, oh my God. I think, right, Viola Davis is sitting in a chair by a fireplace and she's looking back on my life and be like, yo, this is how far we've come. And I'm like, yes, Viola, we've come a long way. So Viola is retelling the story of our life. <laughs> I don't know what's happened <laughs> to that point or where I'm at or where it's going. But if Viola Davis is not in my life at some point, somehow, somewhere, I don't know what I've done wrong. But oh, I always imagine it'll be her. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. I love that. You've even crafted a nice little scene. Um, I love that. Um, <laughs> what's the name of it, Zoe? What's the name of this this? What play? is the name of it? Um, what is the name of it? Probably we survived. So there you have it. The conversation continues. I'd like to thank everyone who's participated in today's show, be they behind the scenes or on the mic. Part of our show was recorded and produced at Corner Studios with the assistance of our producer, John Kitt. Music for this episode was composed, played, and enjoyed with permission by Joachim Nortebert and Andy Ninval. If you like what you've heard, there's more. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter under our handle, Crowd54. Remember, you can find us wherever you do your listening. iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and that's just a few of them. Listen, like, share. Until we meet again, thanks for listening.